expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. This is Dan David coming at you. We have Carl today from the pack. What an unusual guest engineer Carl is. He will make sure that nothing goes wrong. God help us all. God help us all. Right. There you go. I don't like our chances. Anyway, having said that, we we have a different kind of show today. It's not a short seller. It's not criticizing a company. It's not going after and throwing punches at the economy or a politician, we're going to talk about what's good optimism. in the world. Very different for us, well, optimism. It, uh, in a fact-based way. And to do that, I have brought on with us Dr. Marion Tupi, who is the editor of the humanprogress.org and a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and the co-author of The Simon Project. He specializes in globalization and global well-being and politics and economics of Europe and Southern Africa. He is the co-author of the book, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, and many others you will find interesting. I have read that book, and I totally agree. The whole thing was interesting, and I can't wait to talk about some of the trends that are in this book. Dr. Tupi Marion has been quoted in pretty much every you know magazine you could think of: Financial Times, CNBC, done appearances, MSNBC, Fox News, Business, kind of just like non-political, right? Not, not left wing, not right wing, more fact-based wing, if there is such a wing anymore. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tupi. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be with you. Great. So. Your book is is what I want to talk about. And I know you could talk about a lot of different things, but I found I found 10 global trends every smart person should know just mind-blowing in some places, right? Like you just can't imagine how far off uh, speaking for myself that I was on some of the subjects that you discuss. And like just starting off with the introduction of the book, right? Let's let's talk about you know, why this book? That's what it says, right, to begin with. And looking at it, it said, polls show that smart people tend to believe that the state of the world is getting worse rather than better. 58% of respondents throughout the world, it's getting worse. 30% say it's neither getting better or worse. And only 11% thought it was better. In the United States, 65% thought it was getting worse. 23% said neither. Only 6% said it's getting better. This darker view of many uh, prospects of humanity in the natural world is in large part badly mistaken, according to Marion. We demonstrate in these pages, he says, an uncontroversial data taken from official and scientific sources. So tell me this first question. Why do we not think the world's getting better 
in spite of the data you present that we'll get into? Well, one of the most important reasons is that uh, very few people have the time or the inclination to really look at uh, data, to, to look for it. Uh, they don't know where to look for it. Uh, even, even if they want to get their hands on data, they don't know where to look for it. But also, uh, I think that our education system, I'm not a huge fan of our education system because I don't think... I'm not either. I don't think it teaches some very important skills, such as, for example, understanding of statistics, also critical thinking in terms of what information looks legit and what doesn't. And that's just the sort of basic problem that human beings are just not particularly interested in numbers, math, uh, statistics. Now, the other problem is, of course, that we have evolved to look at the negative in life. Evolved from when? When did that start? Well, it, well, it, it started seven and a half million years ago, whenever, you know, our, our ancestors split from uh, the chimps, but uh, Homo sapiens has been around for about 300,000 years. And you've got to think that the life or rather the planet was incredibly inhospitable to our species. So you were always on the lookout for something to eat you. Uh, <laughs> well, you say you say in your book, and it's, it's a pretty good analogy. I, I liked it. If you're if if you're sitting in the grass, and you know you're talking about a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago, and you hear a rustling in the grass, you can either tell yourself that's the wind, or it's a lion. Now, if you tell yourself that's the wind and it's a lion, you are not one of our ancestors. Yeah, <laughs> as you put it in our book, <laughs> right? That's right. Or, or if you want to put it in economics terms, the overreaction to a potential threat that turns out not to be a threat is less important than underreaction to a threat, which may turn out to be important. So if you hear that rustle in the bush and you run away and there was nothing behind it, all you are doing is you're, you're expending a little bit of your energy. But if you don't do anything and you get eaten, then of course <laughs> you don't become an ancestor. So, so you know we. That's where it evolved from. You're saying. Um, yes, um, essentially the the Pollyannish and the very optimistic genes would have been weeded out of the gene pool very quickly. But what we what we are left with now that the world has changed and it has become by historical standards uh, very nice. Uh, I'm not suggesting we don't have problems, but my God, living in America in the 21st century, you know, you really won uh, a lottery ticket. But but that evolution has also left us with a number of uh, negativity biases. So for example, we are bad is stronger than good. So for example, we we worry about losses much more than we are looking forward to gains. Also, we underappreciate progress because it is gradual. It happens over a very long period of time, you know, to build a house, to raise a family, to acquire wealth takes a lot of time. Catastrophes happen within seconds, minutes, hours. How long did it take to pull down the World Trade Center? Two hours. Mm -hmm. How long does it take to lose a life in a car crash? Maybe a nanosecond. So those are some of the things that, uh, that make us more pessimistic. Another thing is that um, there's something called the availability heuristic, which is to say that um, traumatic events uh, get pulled out of the memory file 
in our brains with much greater frequency. And so we think that traumatic events are much more, much more likely to happen than not. So for example, an American is much more likely to die by sleeping on a wet bathroom floor than dying from a terrorist attack. But if you ask people what they are afraid of, they will say they will overestimate the likelihood of terrorist attack because we know what a terrorist attack looks like. We can see it on television. Nobody has ever seen a person, you know, splitting their head open uh, on a wet bathroom floor. So, so there are many of these sort of psychological glitches in our minds that make us think that uh, the world is much more dangerous than it really is. And finally, I would also say that, you know, people who sell optimism or who talk about optimism and who are delivering good news, they, 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 they always seem like they are trying to sell you something. Whereas people who warn you about the world is going to fry in eight years you know they are seen they are seen as sages as as uh, you know smart uh, people that we should believe in anyway that's a very long answer to a very short well question. i mean I, I i think it's true that when somebody warns you about something just in general like maybe not saying the world's going to end but if they're giving you sage advice or a warning you thank them for it but if somebody tells you that it's going to be okay. And Hey, you should do this. You're like, okay, somebody's going to try and pick my pocket here. And <laughs> we, we That's do right. kind of have that, that glitch as you call it. Yeah. It's in the media as well. And that's not, that's not a left wing, right wing thing either. It's terror sells, uh, tragedy sells. If it bleeds, it leads that kind of thing, uh, on the news, and then maybe they'll throw in a nice little horse story. I don't know. But like it, it's it's more about the bad things that happen in the news, too. Is that what you found? Yeah, oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, the very nature, the, 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 the essence of news is about things that are happening. So if you have a city being blown to bits uh, by a civil war, like, I don't know, Beirut uh, in Lebanon in the 1980s, you know, um, that, that's news. It's, it's, yeah, it's the nature Gaza of Gaza last week. Yeah. yeah, or or Gaza um, and and Tel Aviv or whatever. But uh, you know, you never have a reporter reporting from Zurich. Uh, Look, nothing is happening here. People are happy, <laughs> making money. Right. It's, that's not that's not news, you know. I'm in <laughs> Holland and the windmills are turning. Just so you know, <laughs> and people are wearing clogs. It's cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's and 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 and, and the, the, you know and and the. the uh, the downside of it all is that, of course, there is nothing we can do about it. I mean, the, 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 you know, this is this is hardwired in our brains. There's right. nothing we can do about it. If you want to change your perspective on life, if you think that, um, you know, I am speaking sense, then the best you can really do is to be aware of your uh, negativity biases and stop and think, hey, am I overreacting to something or not? But you can't get away from how your brain is structured and how it functions. It is just impossible. Awareness of our negativity bias, it's the best that you can do. And very few people obviously know about these things. Yeah. Do you think that the reception of your book, because I, like Dan, I found it fascinating and, and it, it literally blew my mind on so many of the things that have just been beaten into me growing up, you know, th that are wrong. Um, has the, has the response to your book been more shock or more like, well, w this guy's trying to sell snake oil. Or is it controversial in yeah. any way? Oh, no, no, it's not, it's not controversial. I mean, there are some, some, um, 
um, some uh, of the trends where people will ask harder questions and they want to get to the next stage and ask, well, how about X, Y, and Z? But the, the data is not controversial. And uh, one, of the, one of the good things we did, the, the book was originally written for a, for a more general audience. We, we really thought about it as, a, um, as maybe a, um, um, a book which didn't require uh, footnotes. Uh, and, and, and the best thing that we have done as a result of an advice from a smart friend was, you know, really put the footnotes there because there are so many things that people will just find oh, yeah, uh, too. unbelievable. I, and so yeah, we, yeah. so everything is footnoted, every single piece of data, every number is footnoted. And, and what we use, and this is very important, of course, is that this is not our data. There is only one trend, which, which is my data, and that is on natural resources, which we, we can discuss later. But the other 77 trends are all coming from, uh, you know, other, from, from external sources. And when we use external sources, we go to the authorities in those particular areas. So, for example, if you want to talk about, uh, I don't know, HIV AIDS, you go to the organization which tracks that number. Uh, if you want to look about the uh, uh, life expectancy, you go to the United Nations, which has the biggest tracking organization looking at uh, life expectancy and that sort of thing. So anybody with an open mind, all they have to do is to go to the footnote, uh, look it up for themselves, and they know. Uh, now, the reaction. The reaction was very interesting because it, it, sort of, um, it sort of shows you how inexplicable and impossible to control and regulate the free market is. Because what we thought the book would be, uh, the, the audience for the book, we sort of envisaged uh, maybe like uh, university students and people like that. It turns out that people who are most interested in it are people who are involved in investing and finance and wow. sort of long-term planning, accountants and that sort of thing. And they've been buying books uh, by, by the hundreds. I mean, we've had orders for 500 books here, a thousand books there. It was quite extraordinary. People who have read the book and who have, um, uh, who have taken the time to write back to us or leave comments on uh, Facebook, not Facebook, uh, Amazon, have been overwhelmingly positive. We had comments which were really touching, such as, you know, I was depressed, but this changed my life and things like that. Now, th this, is, this is obviously uh, unnecessary. We don't expect it from our readers. Uh, it's unexpected. But when it happens, it really, it really is very touching, and uh, it uh, it is very uh, flattering is the wrong word. It's it's just touching and moving to to think that somebody may have been living in an existential angst, thinking the world is going to end, and suddenly they have a little bit more optimistic attitude uh, on life. That is very very self that, that's very fulfilling for me personally. I hear that's been going around this past year, so I, I, I guess that that would be useful to put out there in the world. And, and before I get started on the first trend I want to talk about, I'll tell you, the other really smart thing you did is each trend is one to two pages. Mm. So not for a, a better way of putting this, but it's a great bathroom read. <laughs> so you, you, know, you, can, you know, you get through three or four trends and uh, you're done with your current trend and you can, you, you can move on. Put it, put it away for a day or two. Yeah, uh, there you go. Well, I mean, you know, you want to stay regular, so for a day. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> going on with what I, when we started this with like the world's not getting better is the view that everybody has yet trend number 12. And I will say it's, it's hard to believe this isn't controversial. If everybody just read the headlines of your trends, it would be controversial. It's only not controversial because it's cited once you read what's in it. Global trend number 12, global happiness is rising. Mm-hmm. That's a fact by quite a bit, actually. In all the studies you've done, why, why is that? Well, because primarily uh, there are a lot of people in uh, previously very poor countries who are growing very fast and people in uh, poor countries which are growing very fast are tend to register very high rates of appreciation of happiness. So there is this very interesting split where where, uh, people who are already accustomed to a lot of good things in life their happiness sort of tends to flatline. And the United States is a bit of an outlier because our happiness on average has either flatlined or slightly declined. Okay. Now, I cannot actually tell you with confidence why that's the case. Uh, there are, you know, I, 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 we would have to get somebody, somebody else uh, on, on the show for that. But in general, The world is becoming happier because there are huge chunks of the world which are growing faster and people have many more opportunities, many more more things going on in their lives. So, for example, before 1978, China was dirt poor. I mean, dirt poor like you couldn't imagine. This was... This was worse than the worst parts of Africa. They had the worst kind of communism, uh, life expectancy, incomes per capita. It was it was it was really third world poverty because they had you know a very heavy type of communism. And um, in 1978, they started liberalizing their economies. They started growing very fast. Uh, their growth they've been growing about 10 percent per year for God knows how many decades. And so within their lifetimes, ordinary Chinese can see their standards of living increase year on year, and that contributes to happiness. And another thing which is so important, and this I cannot ex- um, emphasize this enough, the Easterlin paradox, the, the view that was promulgated in the 1970s that um, at some point wealth gets disconnected from happiness, that actually is no longer tenable. So Easterlin proposed that, uh, you know, as you grow richer, you become happier, but at some point uh, additional dollar doesn't make you happy. And, uh, and, and that's that. Whereas, in fact, newer studies in the last decade or two are showing that uh, happiness tends to increase with income. And so the richer people are, the happier they are. And, and you don't have to necessarily think about it in terms of sort of gaudy, you know, how many Rolexes you have. It's more a question of what wealth buys you, not, not, not in terms of necessarily a new Rolex or a Ferrari, but it buys you time that Your you can own spend. time, yeah. Time that you can spend with your family, right. that you can travel and experience different cultures, right. different cuisines, um, you know, go to Europe. Chinese uh, are all over the world snapping pictures. Why? I've noticed. 
Because for the first time in, 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 in the existence of the Chinese state, they have enough money to go around the world and have true leisure. And so, uh, and so they're happier. And China accounts for what? Uh, 1.4 billion people. That's already what? Uh, I, I, I don't know, 20% of the world's population. Yeah. India also, after 1991, 92, started liberalizing, started growing very fast. Again, uh, happiness is connected to income. So, you know, between China and India alone, you've got like 35% of the human population, which is happier. So that's good. Okay. So... That makes sense. We're just not getting any happier. And <laughs> I, 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 I see that. Well, Americans, it's, it's not yeah. that Americans are unhappy. I've got I've to make sure that your audience understands it. It's just that. Oh, no, it is. <laughs> it's just we are very happy. It's just that we, our happiness is not. It's plateauing. Increase. It's, it's plateauing. And in some cases, you know, there are dips and so forth. Um, you know, it, but we are an outlier. Right. All right. So, did you rank these? I should ask the question when when you when you put trend number one through ten or one through seventy seven, are are they ranked? Because I'm going into no, no, they're not. I mean, we 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 chose the top ten because we thought they were sort of marginally more important than others. But okay. That so the was top ten are ranked uh, uh, ahead of the rest. Ahead Marginal. of the rest, but that, that was an editorial decision. I mean, we we are we are very keen on the others as well. <laughs> so the number one would be the great enrichment, and that basically points out that between fifteen hundred and eighteen twenty, the world gross product grew about 03 percent per year, eventually tripling four hundred and thirty billion to one point two trillion in that time period. The pace of the world economic growth sped up 1.3% annually, increasing the size of the volume economy to $3.4 trillion in 1900. Since 1900 that time, from $3.4 trillion, the global economic growth has averaged more than 3% a year, boosting world growth product to more than $121 trillion by 2018. Yeah. That'll buy you a cheeseburger. Yeah. So you're talking three. Uh, very important to add, this is inflation adjusted. This is very important. Yeah. This is the key. This is real money. And this accounts for what industrialization, the industrial revolution, and... Uh, pre pretty much. So uh, let me put it slightly differently. In, in, in case people who are listening to us are a little bit overwhelmed by, by the trillions, uh, let's divide the let's divide human existence to let's start with the agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago up to the modern time prior to 1750 1750 is the beginning of the industrial revolution global economy was growing at 0.01% a year which means that to double your income you needed 6,000 years okay <laughs> at a rate of 0.01% annual growth you need 6,000 years to increase, to, 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 to double your, your income. Between 1750 and uh, 2000, 
the global economy was growing at 1.5% per annum, which means that, that that means that you need 50 years to double your income. Now, in some countries, obviously, like China, uh, you can double your income in seven, uh, well, uh, you can, uh, what is it, the, the, the rule of 70s, uh, if your economy grows at uh, 10%, then you double your income every seven years. Uh, then you have other tremendous success stories like Hong Kong and South Korea and Chile and, um, and, and others which have grown very fast. So in some places, the economy grows at a much faster rate than 1.5%, but at 1.5%, you double your GDP every 50 years. So, so that's important. Something happens in the late 18th century, which really changes human history in, uh, in, in the most profound ways. Think about it this way. If you were a peasant or a slave or whatever in Pharaonic Egypt 4,000 years ago, and then you moved to ancient Rome, your life was exactly the same. If you were a peasant in Europe at the time of the Roman conquest in 1066, your life would have been no different than, than, than a Roman peasant 1,000 years before. But a 1,000 years later, which is to say in 1900, you are beginning to see human flight cars, electricity, refrigerators, and things like that. So the last 200 years are really, really profoundly different. And I think that part of the reason why um, people are, I don't think that we quite, I don't think that we have quite understood how lucky we are that we are living today as opposed to any time before, you know, 200 years, Humans are 300,000 years old, so 200 years is what, 0.066% of our history. So we've been, we've been prosperous, we've been modern for less than, uh, less than 1% of our time on Earth. Yeah, it was it was pretty filthy three hundred years ago. From what I've read, it was horrible. Yeah, yeah. Did, uh, you know, did you know Versailles didn't have toilets? Yeah, it, well, <laughs> I. <laughs> I can imagine 300 years ago, you would probably not want to shit in Versailles. You, you would have the piss yeah, boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw the Mel Brooks movie. He had a piss boy. <laughs> That's right. He'd, piss boy. He'd come over and he'd hold a bucket for him. There you well, go. But if the, piss boy, if the piss boy wasn't around, I mean, even the highest nobility, they would simply re relieve themselves behind a curtain or whatever. Um, there's a great English expression. It's called the king's progress. People wonder why the queen needs so many castles. And the reason why the British monarchs had so many castles is because they would move from one castle to another few times a year. To clean them up? Precisely. Really? So they, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. It was yeah. called the king's progress. The, the king and his court would, would leave a castle. They would go to another. <laughs> they would spend a few months there, completely befouled, pissed, shit, vomited <laughs> everywhere. Uh -huh. And then they would go to another castle while the peasants <laughs> cleaned up the last one. Wow. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. And this, this is why you need castles. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'll, I think I think I'm going to do that. I'm just going to like <laughs> go to a house. To, yeah. <laughs> Buy a new house. And and with this this time period you're talking about, right? So we not only got Trend 60, access to electricity. Trend 61, lighting costs are near nothing now. So the economy of scale has become that electricity and lighting, they don't really cost much of anything anymore. 
Well, so in 1800, you would need uh, 50 hours of labor to afford one hour of reading light. Um, today, sorry, in 1990s, when the statistics simply stops being uh, followed because it becomes, it's almost nothing. It, it was like 0.00002 cents uh, by the mid-1990s. So basically, an hour of reading light is uh, negligible. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it doesn't really feature in people's. Uh, another thing which has become incredibly cheap was is, is food. You know, today, uh, mm-hmm. I think Americans spend something like... Uh, um, 8% of their budgets on, uh, on the food. Not uh, Carl and I. No. <laughs> we spend 80. Well, I mean, America is, a, again, a bit of an outlier because, you know, uh, before COVID, Americans spend as much on food at home as they spent uh, in the restaurants. So Americans don't mind spending money in restaurants, even though the food there is much more expensive. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you think about sort of medieval period, uh, anywhere between 50 and 80% of a poor person's budget would go toward food. And most of it was bread. Uh, people ate bread and water and that was it. Wow. Yeah. I get, I, I, I guess that's it, right? For most of human existence, people worked for food. They hunted for food. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, it was basically food. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that is interesting on points trend 60 and 61 about, you know, the cost of electricity and lighting being negligible now compared to then and think about it like just a hundred years ago you had to work 50 hours just for an hour of of reading light that's insane it is insane. Uh, well, to, to, I mean, yeah i mean uh, uh, you know if you read like diaries of people like uh, jefferson or uh, or um, ben franklin they include in their accounts candles candles were very very expensive very expensive you had to slaughter whale scrape out the, the fat from its brains to fashion into um, into candles and they're Lovely. very expensive. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the my pet peeves about uh, historical dramas is that you constantly have these great balls with you know people beautifully dressed and wigged and so on. And there are candles everywhere. That's not what it would have been like. Even in places like Versailles or other places, the place would have been mostly dark during during the night. Uh, maybe one or two rooms, the balls would have been lit, but they were lit very poorly. the 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 cost of candles was just prohibitively expensive. It was a true uh, major part of people's budget. Um, and and so when you see you know candles everywhere in historical dramas, understand it wasn't like that. Candles were very expensive. Up until when? I mean, what are we talking about here? Are we talking 1800s, 1900s? I mean, 17, oh, 1800s? All the way through the 1800s. I mean, in the late uh, first half of the 19th century. And by the second half of the 19th century, you start getting lamps, oil lamps, which are cheaper. Yeah. Um, and um, that that persists in parts of the world until the mid-20th century, uh, you know, oil lamps. Um, so when even- it was dark, it was dark. It was, yeah. I mean, there really wasn't much that you could do, uh, even in places like uh, like uh, major cities. Uh, and of course, crime was rife because the streets were not lit. If you got hit over the head, which is why anybody who had any sense and money had their own uh, private guards, because at night who who were carrying torches, because at night there was no safety. If somebody whacked you over the head and stole your pouch of money, yeah. well, you know that was that was that. Uh, um, you know, then in late 1800s, you get first street lighting in uh, gas lighting in places like London and Paris. Uh, that was a big deal. 
but before then, everything was dark. And of course, if you lived in uh, urban, uh, sorry, uh, rural areas, then it was much worse because you were so poor, you didn't have candles. So you just had the fireplace, you cooked dinner, and after you ate, you went to bed, and uh, life was pretty boring. Okay. Trend number two. <laughs> This would be something that somebody just read and be like, hmm, the end of poverty. And it's, it's very interesting statistics. I mean, by the late 1820s, nearly 84% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, not just poverty, but extreme poverty. And by 1910, 66%, 55% by 1950. And let me just fast forward to where we are today. We're looking at what's the percentage here today? 8.6%. That's staggering. Right. So two things on that. First of all, we are talking, it's necessary to point out, we are talking about absolute poverty. Obviously, America doesn't really have absolute poverty. What we have is relative poverty. So um, when people talk about poverty in America, they look at average income and they say, okay, what is the, you know, the, the relative poverty is set of something like 30% of average income. And, and as average incomes increase, then relative poverty increases. You know, the definition of relative poverty increases with it. Absolute poverty is different. Absolute poverty is measured by about $2 per person per day, which is what human beings, uh, quote unquote, lived on for the last 12,000 years. Uh, there was a complete flat line. Um, and on that account, um, about 90% of people in the world lived on about $2 per person per day back in 1800. Adjusted for inflation. Oh, this is all real. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all real money, meaning uh, these are $2011 or $2016. I can't quite remember. But the bottom line is it is adjusted for inflation. So back in 1800, about 90% of humanity lived on $2 per person per day. By eight, by 1980, sort of Reagan administration, it was 40%. Uh, that fell to 30% by, uh, by the end of the Clinton administration in 2000. And between 2000 and 2020, we have seen the largest drop in, uh, in absolute poverty ever recorded. And that was from about 30% to less than 10%. Now, the, uh, of course, the, 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 uh, we've got to remember that hundreds of millions of people have been pushed back into absolute poverty during COVID. We will make up that for, for that loss in about two or five years' time. But, you know, it's it's probably ticked up a little from 9% to maybe 11 12%, we'll see, but uh, uh, maybe even more uh, because of COVID. Uh, in many poor countries, uh, you know, jobs disappeared and day laborers, uh, you know, fell back into into absolute poverty. But But hopefully, as the economy picks up, global economy, of course, I'm talking about, then we'll be able to resume the trend toward elimination of absolute poverty, which should be eliminated by about 2030. Maybe now it will happen in 2035 or so. But absolute poverty right now, at this point in time, is primarily an African problem, not necessarily a world problem. Uh, like vast majority of people who live on $2 per person per day live in Africa, not in other regions. So you're talking about nine to 14 years we could eradicate absolute poverty. Yeah. Hmm. And that, that doesn't include the 10 cities in LA, right? 
That's not happening. <laughs> that's well, not. I wonder to what extent that's a self-inflicted wound by, yeah, uh, by the good people of California. I, yeah. I wonder. Uh, okay, so third is a question. Trend number three, are we running out of resources? I mean, the answer to that, if you ask anybody on the street, is absolutely. We are yeah. running out of resources. So tell me, Dr. Tupi, are we running out of resources? So this is the only data set in the book which i have produced myself okay that's um, good for clarification um, uh, because it's uh, tight uh, because it's tied to my own research which i do at the simon project and uh, basically what we do at the simon project we look at uh, the prices of um, 50 most important commodities in the world. We do not, I repeat, we do not pick those commodities. We do not cherry pick those commodities. We take them from the World Bank and from the IMF. The World Bank and the IMF, they uh, basically uh, track uh, prices of uh, 50 most important commodities in the world. Uh, they include anything from zinc, uh, oil, bananas, oranges, shrimp, pork, beef, um, you know, potassium, anything, uh, the, anything that you need to start a civilization, and they keep this list and they keep the prices. And so, what we looked, at, uh, what we looked at, we looked at the nominal prices, and you will not be surprised to hear that nominal prices of natural resources have gone up because obviously the dollar becomes less uh, valuable every year because we have a fiat currency. But when we looked at real prices, inflation-adjusted prices of these fifty commodities, then on average they, um, they were about. Uh, well, they were cheaper than, than they were in 1980. And then the last thing we did uh, was to compare the prices of natural resources to wages. Because here's what we found, is that the only resource which consistently increases in price is actually human labor. Everything else is getting cheaper, but human labor is becoming more and more expensive as human beings are becoming more productive. And so once you um, look at the price of natural resources uh, uh, relative to the human earning power, what you realize is that uh, um, uh, resources are about 70% cheaper than what they were in 1980. That's amazing. Well, they're cheaper, but are we running out of them? Well, if you believe that that um, that prices uh, in a capitalist free market society are the best indicator of what is becoming uh, more abundant and what is becoming less abundant, then a decline in price should indicate that things are actually becoming more abundant rather than less abundant. I mean, if the price of along with efficiency increases. So uh, there are a number of things that are happening. One is efficiency increases. We are using less stuff in order to produce more. For example, a can of Coke today is much lighter than what it was 20, 30, or 40 years ago. That's just the profit motive at play. Uh, companies want to make their outputs as cheap as possible, so they want to save money on inputs. Uh, why spend more on aluminum if you don't have to? Uh, but another thing is that uh, as, as advanced economies are switching from things to ideas from from uh, um, you know to 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 bits bit economies and service economies we need fewer resources and so in the most advanced economies uh, as andrew mcafee from mit documented we have actually seen a decoupling of the use of resources and economic growth so um, of the 78 uh, resources that he tracked 
um, uh, almost all of them peaked in about 2000. And since then, Americans have been using, the US economy has been using fewer resources in absolute terms, even though its economy continues to expand. Um, in addition to efficiency gains, remember that we are also switching from things which are becoming endangered or more expensive. So for example, when the planet started running out of whales, um, uh, because uh, because we were making candles out of them, yeah. uh, we simply stopped killing them and we came up with electricity. Same. The Japanese really didn't, but you know. Japanese didn't really, yeah. Um, um, but now it seems that the whale population is uh, rebounding, uh, booming, is booming. Yeah. Uh, same with polar bears, pandas are having baby. Hold again. on. Well, you said polar bears populations booming. Yes, there was. There have been recently reports in the last couple of years about polar bears uh, being on the upsurge in polar bears in uh, throughout the, the northern hemisphere. I haven't seen a picture of a polar bear in the last three years that they didn't say was starving to death or was yeah, emaciated. Or, in the or, <laughs> I mean, really, I'm I'm believing this because, like, I look. I I don't think you're a climate denier, and I I no, know I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm not. Yeah, so we both agree that the earth is warming uh and that seems like that would cause polar bears a problem but it's not well but nature also adapts i mean it's not like it's not like the polar bears um you know are are just um i mean they they, they move uh aside from many other things um and um, I hear they're banging grizzlies too. <laughs> Is there some crossbreeding going on there? That I don't know, oh. but I have seen reports in the last uh, couple of years uh, suggesting that the polar bears uh, are, are booming again. Part of the reason why the environmentalist movement constantly has to change its mascots. I mean, when I was growing up, it was the whale. Those are doing fine. So then it became panda. Well, pandas are making babies left and right. So now it's become polar bears. And Hold the on. Polar now bears pandas are fucking? <laughs> Who, when, did, when did this happen? I haven't heard with, that either. With human help, insemination. Oh, very I often. see. They're not actually doing it. I got you. Okay. They're not doing, they'd have to be incentivized with a little bit of human help. Um, but uh, yeah, well, don't we all? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I, I do urge your audience to to do uh, a bit of Google searching on these new reports on uh, polar bear numbers. I'm going uh, to. They're, they're, they're up thirty percent be... since two thousand five. Really? Yeah. Really? Huh? The, the media is lying to us. Oh shush, Carl. <laughs> well, you know, listen, I I love that this is just about mostly good news, right? Like, I well, mean, there's two things here uh, I haven't even read the in the book that polar bears are on the rise. Yeah, pandas aren't having sex again, but you know, still they're on the rise. <laughs> this is good. Well, but look, um, I, I know that a lot, lot going to be a lot of listeners who are saying this is all bullshit. I mean, uh, you know, he's lying to us. Uh, first of all, okay, you know, uh, do do check everything I say. Uh, Google it. Um, um, but but Carl more just did. Yeah. <laughs> but more importantly, uh, understand something very very important, and that, and it is this. Wealthy societies are better stewards of the environment than poor societies. Yeah. When economy goes to the toilets, like it did in Venezuela and Zimbabwe and places like that, the they first eat thing the tigers in the zoo. Yeah. It's the first thing that people do is to slaughter the wildlife because right. if it's a question of you know you feeding your family or right. or you know seeing that 
beautiful giraffe in you know what you have to do You're right um now so matt ridley uh, a a british science writer makes this point by pointing to three things one is um, wolves tigers and elephants keep those three animals in mind tigers wolves and elephants we think of wolves all the time go ahead <laughs> wolves are booming they have returned to much of europe uh, because there's so much, so, so much of the area in uh, in in Europe is now is now uh, natural preserves. So wolves, which have been close to exterminated and have been uh, chased out to the to the edges of civilization, are now making a huge comeback in Europe precisely because uh, you know they are protected. Tiger population has stabilized because tigers uh, tend to live in middle-income countries where countries have a lot more money and manpower to look after their well-being. Elephants are dying because they tend to live in countries which are very poor, where the state is incompetent and corrupt, doesn't have money to pay for good protection, you know, helicopters, um, um, flying over, chasing away poachers and things like that. So, so counterintuitively, it is economic development which is the best friend of um, of of animals because if you can make your money in the cities, if you can make your money in service industry and where you can where where you are so efficient agriculturally that you can just bring all those people off the land, the land will naturally return to, 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 to animals. You don't have to do anything else, just get the people out of the land, out of the urban, uh, sorry, out of the rural areas and uh, nature will reassert itself very, very quickly. So urbanization is a very important component of human progress and, well, uh, and wealth. Well, let's talk about that. First of all, if you kill an elephant, you should be killed. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, ironically, it's the rich people that will kill the elephant. Some well, uh, hold on. Uh, I need from to, New uh, York that. that wants to take a day trip to Africa and shoot an elephant. So I need to, uh, I need to just make one, one quick point. Uh, yes, I'm very much against uh, slaughtering higher animals. I think it's ridiculous, and I think that people who do it for fun or even out of some sort of a thrill. Are, are in the wrong. I just can't understand yeah. why somebody would get a kick out of killing an elephant. However, ask Donald Trump Jr. However, it's also true that in some of these nature reserves in Africa, I, I spent part of my life in Africa, um, and uh, some of these reserves, uh, uh, elephants sometimes need to be killed. Uh, because their populations explode to such a such a point where you you have to take out a few of them, otherwise the whole population will collapse because there is not enough food for them. So so th that's that's one thing that we have to keep in mind is that sometimes regulated uh, killing is necessary so that there isn't mass starvation. That uh -huh. that that's that's one thing that is important. Another thing which happens in Africa is that a lot of these private parks, especially make their money and are able to keep so many animals alive precisely because they allow a few animals to be slaughtered. So for example, uh, let's say that you have a bad season, there isn't enough grass and suddenly it is up to the man or a woman to come up with um, food to, 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 to feed uh, say thousands of elephants or giraffes or whatever, that costs a lot of money. In order to do that, you can issue permits to a few people to kill a few animals in order to earn a lot of foreign currency, a lot of dollars that you can then spend on food and also 
um, medical procedures for uh, for for the elephants and things like that. So it's a complicated picture, but 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 more wealth generally means better environment. I've never met somebody that killed an elephant, tiger, giraffe, or lion or something of the such that wasn't a shithead. I mean, like, Fair enough. I, you know, I've 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 met them. They are all shitheads, though. It just seems to be a commonality between them. And I understand what you're saying, and I know that you're particularly aware of what happens in Africa. That's where you're from. You were, you were born in Rhodesia, right? And then now Zimbabwe. No, I, I was actually born in Europe, but I grew up in South Africa. Oh, so I grew, grew up in South, South Africa. Africa. And I, I traveled through Zimbabwe and Botswana and Kenya and Tanzania and many other places. Yeah. I guess, I guess, did I read that Rhodesia or Zimbabwe was one of your specialties at one point or you were? Uh, yes, that, that's, that's absolutely correct. Yes, I, I have devoted, <laughs> one would say, a lot of wasted time to try to keep Zimbabwe from uh, descending into absolute chaos under yeah. the Mugabe regime. Yeah, I failed on that one. Well, I've tried to help too. I, uh, I, I have two Rhodesian Ridgebacks, so I saved two oh, dogs. Oh, they're <laughs> gorgeous dogs. My God, they're my favorites. Oh, yeah, they... They are great, great dogs, they and uh, anybody that wishes me misfortune, I'd like you to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so th this brings me back to what you were talking about, because I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to Trend 6. You're saying there's more land for nature, and mm -hmm. I, I guess what you're talking, and you're, you're saying there's more canopy cover now. Yeah. than we've had in the past, which is not something that we hear or, or I would believe, I would believe. Ever. And more ocean reserves are protected uh, preserves as well. Can you expand on that? Well, let's, let's, let's start backwards. The, uh, right now, I believe that there is more land under protection than the size of the United States. That's what it says uh, here. Globally, yeah. globally. Uh, you know, there are there just there's just dozens, if, if not 100 countries where uh, uh, a part of the country is reserved for nature. It's, it's become something of a thing over the last 120 years since Teddy Roosevelt and every a uh, reasonably well-run country has a uh, has a nature reserve where animals are permitted to do whatever they want to do, um, and so um, the the amount of land under protection now is historically at its height. I think it's now more than the the size of the United States globally. Oceans are also uh, protected at the highest level in history. However. Uh, protection of the oceans is a little more complicated because yeah. it's more expensive and, um, you know, uh, fishermen, mostly Chinese fleets, um, they sort of tend not to follow the global <laughs> To give a shit at all. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and not, the, not the least of which, I mean, we have enough trash in there circling around the size of texas i mean they so it doesn't um, you're not you're not in any way saying that we're doing a good job keeping our oceans clean we could do better but you're saying there are more preserved parts of the ocean than there ever yes, have been yes yes i'm not pollyannish i'm not denying that uh, that there are problems in the world now remember that 90 percent of all plastic that flows into the ocean flows from eight rivers all of them are in asia and in africa 
right? Uh-huh. So again, it's a question of poverty. When you have poor countries that don't care very much about their environment and what they really care about is employing very poor people and producing as much as possible, uh, they're using their rivers as garbage dumps and that goes into the ocean. Well, I mean, um, look, you don't consider yourself off the hook, America, because we send our shit over there and then they throw it in their rivers. So we're pretty guilty too. There are these issues um, that hopefully can be tackled through economic development in, yeah. in the very poor countries where they start being better stewards of their environment. Um, other things that we can do about plastic, for example, is trying to put some real money behind research on uh, on uh, how to destroy plastics through microbial um, consumption. So there are there are different types of uh, all, um, different types of uh, bacteria uh, that are able to break down um, uh, plastics, and there is a lot of research going on around the world. So essentially, what you could do at some point in the future is uh, to dig a huge hole, um, uh, fill it up with plastic, uh, then put a bunch of bacteria there to eat it. The bacteria will grow, it will die, it will convert itself into basically c- c- carbon and, and die under, under, under soil. So, so th- there are things that we can do. Now, um, or you could start the zombie apocalypse, but yes. Uh, uh, yes. Carl's been waiting for that. That's on the oceans. Uh, overfishing is still going on, but here's the thing. It, it's not that I'm saying there are no problems. What I'm saying is there are fewer problems, partly as a result of aquaculture. So most of the fish that you now buy in the supermarkets is not wild uh, fish. I mean, wild salmon and wild tuna and things. Well, I, I'm, I don't know much about tuna, but like wild salmon, that's really for people who actually go up to Alaska and catch it themselves and or rich people who can afford it. But most of it is farmed. Uh, most of the fish that we eat is farmed. And that's a great thing. Shrimp, uh, almost all of it is farmed. Uh, th- th- that's a good thing because we can, we can eat the food that we like um, uh, without necessarily killing the things in the wild. So aquaculture is our friend. Uh, another thing which is our friend is uh, genetical engineering of, of crops such as wheat and corn. Um, why? Because if you can genetically engineer these things to withstand um, pests uh, and drought, uh, then you need less water to water them. Uh, you need fewer pesticides. Uh, you need less fertilizer and things like that. So human ingenuity enables us to eat more stuff, perhaps too much, on fewer acres. In other words, our productivity, our agricultural productivity is now so high um, and that we can start returning land to nature. In the last, um, the world has returned land to nature the size of Alaska and Montana combined in the last 20 years. And let me give you another statistic that will blow you away. If the world farmer becomes as productive, as efficient as an American farmer, farmer, will be able to return the land size, the size of two Indias back to nature. Wow. 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 So this is the key, getting people off the land into the cities and being as efficient as we possibly can in terms of our farming methods so that, um, so that, so that the wildlife can return. And yeah. we are already doing that and doing a pretty good job at it. Yeah, tree canopy cover in the United States and China, which which surprised me, has increased 34% in 
and 15% respectively in the past 20 years. So that's, that's pretty interesting. And how do you, you know, how do you really, I don't know. I mean, how do you get them off the land and into the city? Because I, I don't want to. With a population increasing, how do we do that? And, and talk to us more about the population increasing and where, where that's going to end at some point. People have been leaving the agricultural world or rather the um, rural setting for urban settings for, uh, well, goodness, um, 200 years. Um, um, and the reason why they have done so primarily is because uh, factories and the Industrial Revolution and uh, uh, cities provide higher wages than, uh, than, uh, than farming uh, did traditionally. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is that uh, rural communities tend to be very closely knit, but also that, that restricts your freedom of action. In other words, if you are, in, uh, if you are an eccentric, let's say that you don't believe the regional god or uh, you are a woman who believes that uh, she shouldn't be under thumb of her husband, or you are my wife, um, <laughs> or let's say that you are a gay person, or or things like that. You know, unconventional lifestyles. Um, the the place you want to be is the city where uh, there are where you are anonymous uh, and where you can lose yourself in the crowd. In in rural areas, in little hamlets of the of the days of yore. Um, everything you did uh, was strictly observed and regulated and judged. And so people went to the cities for economic opportunities, but also because of personal freedom. Um, right now, roughly 55% of the global population lives in cities already. And that is likely to increase uh, to maybe 80% by the end of uh, this current century. And um, um, when it comes to the global population, uh, we've got to understand that we are actually living through a uh, through the beginnings of a demographic collapse. Um, the total fertility rate per woman historically was about six babies per lifetime. Now uh, it's down to about two and a half per lifetime, and the replacement rate of the population is two point one which means that uh, in most of the world, uh, certainly in advanced countries, uh, women are producing fewer babies than are necessary to keep the population stable. Total fertility rate for a South Korean woman is one baby per, um, per lifetime, which means that the South Korean population is at danger of halving every generation. Um, the latest reports uh, suggest that population of the world is going to peak uh, below 10 billion in around 2060. And by the end of this century, we are going to have as many people living in the world as we are today. So roughly um, 7.8 uh, billion people. So we are about to reach the peak in about 2060. And then we are going to see a uh, human population retreat. A lot of reasons for that. Partly women who receive education, have jobs, uh, have freedom, uh, choose to have fewer babies. Uh, the opportunity cost of staying at home uh, when you could be earning big bucks in the marketplace is just much higher today than what it used to be. Yeah, this is all about being a more industrialized, wealthier country. You're, you're saying since the beginning of time, really, 
of, of human time, 3,000 years or whatever, the average was six to eight babies. And you needed that to farm the land and take care of the family. And you needed that big family. Well, no, no, the, the, I don't. The, the, the key here was that most of those babies would die before the age of adulthood. I mean, uh, the. Well, they die farming the land. <laughs> <laughs> no, they died before the age of one. Uh, uh, the uh, child mortality rate before the age of one in Sweden in 1750 was 50%. So that gives you a sense of uh, how horrible it was. I mean, you could reasonably expect to see half of your children die before the age of one. Queen Anne, famously, um, if you watch the great movie, The Favourite, uh, Queen Anne was the Queen of England and Great Britain at the beginning of the 18th century. She gave birth 13 times. All of them died. Okay. Um, so all of them died uh, in infancy. Um, so so the, this was normal for rich and poor alike. Uh, today, um, childbirth is much safer uh, and a lot of babies obviously survive into adulthood. So, um, yeah, they just didn't clean the castle good enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, the, I mean, the, the great, uh, the great Hungarian, uh, uh, physicist called, um, sorry, physician, uh, called Sommerweis, um, realized that doctors should wash their hands before examining women's, uh, private parts. Um, because uh, because what doctors used to do in the past, they didn't wash their hands uh, because they didn't understand the concept of uh, germ theory of disease. And so a doctor could be performing an autopsy on a decomposing body right. in the morning and then go over to the uh, nativity clinic and uh, start examining pregnant women two hours later. Oh. And so um, uh, Sommelweis was uh, rewarded for his great discovery by being put in an insane asylum. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. Wow. Wow. Clean your hands. Go. To it, it all makes sense now, though. <laughs> Poor guy. Well, uh, we remember you fondly, Dr. Sommelweis. Thank you for helping us. But, yeah, I mean, you know, children... You know, same thing in Japan. The population's dwindling. China's now gone to a three-child policy. And especially the educated Chinese citizens who are in the cities are like, nah, I don't think so. I don't want three kids. Yeah, I mean, China, as all communist regimes, they, they, they sort of tend to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they that. decided on this insane one child policy, uh, women being snatched from the street by uh, secret agents and have abortions performed on them, you know, seeing that children drowned or strangled in front of them because they already had one. So it caused a lot of human suffering and it really undermined the Chinese economy. Yeah. Now they've got a really big problem because it's like 10 men for every nine women. Um, yes, the, the gap between Chinese men and women peaked a few years ago at 120 men per 100 women, which means that 20% of the Chinese men could not hope to find a Chinese woman, which uh, has its knock-on effects on things like criminality. Yeah, and we have, we have problems here about being involuntary celibate. But, yeah, you know, or whatever they yeah, call, yeah, that's really more about wearing Birkenstock sandals, cargo shorts. <laughs> And uh, T-shirts with sayings that only the people at work know what it means. Those, those, those people here in the United States, you're not getting laid. Well, if you want to get laid, you've got a responsibility to look good, smell good, 
yeah. earn a good living and provide a woman, uh, uh, provide a woman or indeed a man with uh, with uh, you know safe and uh, and uh, predictable environments. I'm um, writing all of this down. <laughs> so you're saying this is another thing that could be, if you just read the headline, controversial, decarbonizing the economy. That's happening. We're decarbonizing the economy? Well, uh, it's a complex picture. Um, we are certainly producing goods. Uh, sorry, we are producing a GDP of output uh, with, with less carbon, which is to say that for every dollar that the American economy or the British economy or the French economy produces, we are using less carbon. We are emitting less carbon than we would have, say, 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. Um, the advanced economies, France and Britain and the United States, uh, have really decoupled uh, the uh, economic growth from, from uh, CO2 growth. Um, but the absolute amount of CO2 which is produced into the atmosphere is still growing, partly because there, because, well, well, because um, no matter how good a job we do in order to reducing our CO2 footprint here in the West, in advanced economies, uh, places like China and India honestly don't give a, you know, no. because because they have other priorities. They want to grow very fast. They want to chew. They want to. They want to use the cheapest energy possible, and uh, they are not going to sacrifice their economic growth uh, for CO2. Now, now CO2 is not all bad. Remember that uh, CO2 is absolutely necessary for life on Earth. So green things eat energy. Uh, CO2. I mean, you know, trees like. CO2, yeah, they, they, grow, they grow faster. One thing that you asked me before and that I didn't answer is the tree canopy, sorry, the, 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 the greening of the earth. Again, this doesn't come from me, it comes from NASA. Uh, the world is greener, why? Because trees and grasses and whatever are growing uh, greener and bigger foliage. Now, the reason why they're doing that is because there is more CO2 in the atmosphere. The, 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 the trees and the grasses are becoming obese. That's the essence of it, because they have more food. Um, and, and so CO2 is not all bad, but in general, I would say, if for no other reason than the sake, for the sake of capitalism, we should produce, we, we should come up with a technology which produces plentiful energy without CO2 emissions. We already have that energy source. It's called nuclear. If the environmentalists were serious about what they are claiming to be serious about, which is the future of the planet, they would be putting money not behind windmills and solar. They would be putting money uh, behind creating small and uh, highly uh, safe uh, nuclear reactors um, uh, because nuclear doesn't, uh, doesn't produce any CO2. Yeah. You should probably not put it on, you know, a coastal city in Japan either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with every one of these, well, uh, uh, yes, but also remember that nuclear energy is uh, safest, if not, if not safest, then surely one of the, one of the safest methods of producing, uh, electricity, many more people get killed, uh, mining coal and producing coal or on oil rigs than in nuclear disasters. Once again, one of the one of those terrible consequences and legacies of, of communism is that the Chernobyl disaster, which yeah. was um, 
which was denied and then covered up by the communists in the USSR, really poisoned not just Ukraine and Belarus, but it, it poisoned people's attitude to nuclear. Um, well, we had Three Mile Island here, too. Nobody died. Nobody died. Nobody died in Fukushima either. People died in Chernobyl. Yeah, there's still ecological disasters, and and people just, I'm just telling you, they got freaked out about it. I mean, people, people are freaked out about it, but they mustn't forget that, of course, ecological disaster comes from all sorts of things. I mean, ecological disasters comes from cutting down African forests so that African right. people can cook their food. The, 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 there are costs and benefits to everything. That's that's the that's the that's the horror of economics. Uh, is that uh, you've got to understand that economics is about trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think the nuclear piece is it's scale and time, right? So Chernobyl is still an active nuclear bomb basically sitting there. They built the the coffin over it that deteriorated and then they built another coffin over top of that and it's still Well, it's, I don't I don't I don't think it's going to explode or it's a bomb. I think well, it's a, a radioactive, you know, uh site nightmare. Yeah, well, yeah. But uh yeah, I I mean, listen. I appreciate the dumb comment anyway. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, I'm with you on nuclear energy. It is a good thing. It's complicated, but people have to understand that that when it comes to energy, which is really the source of everything, energy goes into everything. Um, you do not have uh, you do not have a magic wand. Yes, you could, you can have you can have solar panels in places where the sun shines 20, uh, you know, all the time, but the efficiency is just not there yet relative but, to but creating those panels and then disposing of those panels costs a lot of money and contributes to environmental damage. All those windmills that are cutting up, um, you know, uh, a rare species of birds. Also oh, don't say that. Don't you dare say that. <laughs> don't you dare. You're you're going to be labeled a Trumpkin. I mean, <laughs> it was true though. That when I, I you, know, but he up. says it so dumb. Oh, you're I, right. I know. I mean, like the birds, the birds, they're killing the birds. <laughs> like it, it well, does. Well, my point is, my point is, uh, every energy source has to be evaluated in the totality of its cost and benefits. Fair enough. So, you think past that we could be at a point in human existence? to end famine, which, which is a big deal because I could make a point that famine is the cause of a lot of wars. And even, even recently, people may disagree and feel free to ping me on Twitter. I won't read it, but go ahead. <laughs> in Syria, that whole outbreak in Syria back in 2011, 12, and when it started, a lot of it had to do with drought and famine and people kind of moving into the cities and not having jobs. And, and then you had this unrest of unfairness and then you had civil war in Syria and then we've got to stick our nose in past that. You look at, you know, Bangladesh or, or even Florida, the old people are going to drown. I mean, and this drought and, 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 and famine are still kind of on the horizon as far as I can see. What do you think? Well, first of all, we have to be careful with the terms that we use. Famine is different from drought, and it is different from food insecurity and many other concepts. Famine okay. has a distinct meaning. Famine means that uh, millions of people die because they have absolutely no food. 
uh, th th and famines are usually a result of conflicts, not not a precipitating factor in 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 conflict. So they usually tend to follow wars, but but not not always, uh, not always. Um, and um, or they're deliberate, uh, like Mao Zedong or what uh, Russia. Well, that, that's that that's right. Or Stalin in, in Ukraine, in where Ukraine, he, yeah. Yeah, where he prevented food from actually reaching Ukraine in order to reduce the Ukrainian population. Nice guy. Um, he was a nice guy. Um, now, the thing is that, um, so right now in the world, we do not have famines, by which I mean millions of people starving because there is no food. We do have, um, we do have starvation in conflict places uh, where there are wars such as for example yemen uh, at least that's what it was like last year or the year before when the yemeni civil war was in full flux and you also have it in pockets in africa where there are civil wars and uh, you, essentially you cannot bring food to uh, the starving population because you cannot do airplane drops and whatever but the uh, but the 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 old kind of famine you know where uh, a crop fails and and the whole population starves that doesn't happen in sub-saharan africa today sub-saharan africa produces roughly 2450 calories per person per day which is roughly where the portuguese were in the early 1960s so even in sub-saharan africa which is the poorest continent in the world uh, subcontinent in the world, uh, you don't have famines. You have increasingly problem of obesity. A recent report from Kenya suggests that, uh, uh, especially in uh, uh, urban areas, um, uh, people are getting uh, increasingly obese. Uh, that doesn't mean that poor people are not starving in Africa. That's what I would call food insecurity. But the but population collapse as a result of famine that no longer happens in the way that it used to. So so yeah. Now, when it comes to drought, uh, when it comes to drought, again, um, I think that when it comes to drought and supply of water, it's really a question of whether you are living under a government that has a long-term plan and... Uh, um, uh, engineering? Engineering. So, for example, Israel recycles 90% of its water and desalinates the rest, which means that it's not only able to supply water for its population, but also it supplies fresh water to surrounding Arab populations, which are trying to destroy it. Yeah. Not only that, but uh, Israel is an exporter of food. It is an exporter of agricultural products in a yeah. country with almost no water resources. Yeah, it's Why? A, it's a Again, rug. <laughs> re uh, recycling is part of it, and also uh, desalination. Um, yeah, I love when people talk about the West Bank, like, like there's actually a river there that, I mean, you're lucky if it's a Creek. I mean, it's That's like, right. it's, it's That's completely right. dry and the plateaus above it prior to, I mean, for better or worse, I like, I, I'm not, I'm not taking a view or a side here, but once they started putting Israelis in the West bank, they irrigated it. It, it looked beautiful. Farmland. I mean, they made it into farmland. Yeah. Which, I guess the Palestinians didn't have the opportunity to do economically to Dr. Tupi's point that if you don't have the money, 
engineering is going to not be there either. So you have to have secure property rights. You have to have uh, um, you have to have access to technology. So one thing which is really revolutionary, which is happening in the world, and again pioneered in Israel, is called. Uh, um, what is it? Intelligent uh, agriculture? No, uh, precision agriculture. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that uh, every plant has a small monitor attached to it, which shows you when it needs water. And uh, at that point, all you need to do is to trickle a few drops of water onto that particular plant in order to make it grow, which again is a massive saving of water from previous times when you sort of irrigated entire, um, you know, entire sort of circles of agriculture cultural land and some of that water got wasted right now every plant gets as much water as it wants to or needs uh, because it is attached to a microchip that's crazy uh, that is that is wow wow well the Isra- leave it to the israelis right like you, you threaten their existence every day and they get pretty efficient they're just, they're- again re- let me re-emphasize israel is exporting fresh water to surrounding Ara- it's, it's arabic incredible. countries it's an incredible feat of human ingenuity really and you're saying hunger's on the retreat. I mean, uh, trend 55 and 1965, you're showing 40% of the people had hunger issues, food insecurity issues. And now we're, you know, around 10, 12% in the world. Well, that's tied to the whole notion of, um, you know, end of famines is that, uh, you know, again, these are two separate concepts, but they are related in a sense that, um, um, what you need is to produce more food. And um, once again, in, in, uh, as societies grow richer, um, uh, people get wealthier, uh, you are able to um, get more money for a variety of hunger relieving programs and, and so on and so forth. Our country is a perfect example. Um, poor people do get uh, food uh, from the taxpayer. Um, many of them choose to spend it on the wrong kinds of food, but never mind. The point is that they Are do receive food in government support. I'm <laughs> huh? huh? a little early in our relationship for you to be poking fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, so trend number nine, this, this is interesting. I found it pretty funny. Long peace. Like we're, as far as wars go, much more peaceful in the world. God, it doesn't feel like that. No. It mm. just doesn't. And I'm looking at a chart here that shows, you know, I don't have my glasses in front of me, but basically since 2006, there's been one country at war. <laughs> Guess who that would be? Uh... And then in, in, in 2006, there were two countries at war. I guess that was probably the Ukrainian outbreak. I don't know. Well, I don't what what is the one country that's been at war? Is that us? It's got to be us, right? Uh, let's see. Uh, international conflict in the last ten years uh, depends how you measure it. Uh, there is such a thing as an internationalized dropping civil bombs war. on people. Well, you've got little green men invading Crimea and right. eastern Ukraine, right. so that that's war. one example. Um, the 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 key statistic here is that nobody declares war on another country. Uh, now that may seem like uh, you know the, I think the last time a country declared war was us declaring war on Hungary during the Second World War. Uh, I think we declared um, war on Afghanistan. We did. That, that wasn't declaration of war. What are you talking about? They said we said give over Osama bin Laden or we're going to war with you. Sure, uh, it, it just wasn't. 
you know, a pick a, up your a, rocks and stand armed. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That countries still do conflict on one another. They just don't declare war because that's perceived to be a little bit, uh, you know, primitive. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, now, now the reason, look, the reason why why we feel that the world is very violent is that because we haven't been around 500 years ago 500 years ago war between great powers was the default Fine. position yeah uh, i mean uh, spain france britain germany uh, sorry the holy roman empire were at war uh, with each other 100 yeah. of the time yeah um romans um even the pope had an army yeah <laughs> Romans had this temple in uh, in Rome. I, I think it was called the Temple of Janus or something like that, uh -huh. and or maybe it was the Temple of Mars. And they had a door, and the door would be closed when the country was at peace. And I think that in two hundred years it was open for two years, <laughs> and, uh, well. so it was closed for two years, and and the rest of the time it was open because the country was con constantly at war. So so war was a a a. Um, uh, a default position of humanity for thousands of years, and now it is peace, really. When countries go to war, it's newsworthy precisely because it is so rare. Um, um, and, and, and much of the world has been at peace. I mean, we, we don't really have a conflict between two countries in the Western Hemisphere. We haven't had for a very long time now. That's something. And the reason we wouldn't go to war with another power like China or, or Russia in part because of our economic entanglements, which are not all bad to have, because when you have those economic entanglements, you don't want a war. So uh, this, um, so uh, economic peace theory has, it's, it's fine, I like it, I think it's plausible, but we have to be careful because, you know, before the First World War, uh, the biggest consumer of German products was Great Britain, and they ended up going to war anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so it can happen. It can happen. But I, I will agree with you that economic entanglement uh, makes going to war more difficult. Yeah, that's that's what I mean, yeah, definitely. It it can happen and has happened. I mean, it changes the calculus without a doubt. Yeah, uh, America is particularly prone to 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 going to wars. Unfortunately, no. uh, in the last in the last twenty years, especially, um, I, I think part of the problem is really that we are a very safe country. Uh, we are really safe from uh, from you know we are separated from the world's troubles. The Western Hemisphere is controlled by us. That's, yeah, that's and, what it is. We are separated from the rest of the world from yeah. by, by two vast oceans. Yeah. And 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 um, unfortunately, my my new countryman, because I've become a proud American a few years ago. Oh, welcome aboard. Thanks, thanks. Uh, I assume my part of the debt, uh, national debt. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Thank you. Welcome aboard. Un unwillingly, but um, we sort of have a elevated um, sense of what's dangerous, and so no matter what happens around the world, no matter in what godforsaken place, we sort of think that we need to go and solve it, and then we make a mess of it. So I wish we would be a little less trigger happy. Oh yes. But yeah. I told, you know. yeah, we have to kill them over there so they don't kill them over us over here. Oh, Shut up. Shut up. And then we're um, over there for 20 years. I mean, come on. For what? For what? I mean, the Middle East will only see Westerners as crusaders. I mean, that's, that's how it's viewed. And they will fight to the end. We're energy independent. They can have it. 
And and also uh, also I, I think I mean correct me because you are you are a native here. Um, our attention spans are not particularly long. You know, when when the Brits took over the countries that they colonized, they they sort of had hundreds of years in mind. When <laughs> when we when we invade a country, we have a sort of two to four year time frame, and if it doesn't work out, then we say screw you guys, we're going home. Colin Powell said, "If you break it, you own it." So. But nobody wanted. To, nobody wants to own a rock. I mean, believe me, you don't. My my family's from there. You don't want to own it. And our Middle East policy should be based in the protection of the only democracy in the Middle East, Israel. So everything else. I mean, you're not going to stop a sectarian war. If a sectarian war is going to happen, it's going to happen. If a Christian gets in the middle, the only thing a Shia Muslim or a Sunni Muslim agree on is they want to kill the Christian. And that's what's <laughs> happened over the past 20 years, right? I mean, you know, the, the Christian population has been decimated by this war in the Middle East. But that's wars. And I just find it interesting that we, it is a safer place, technically. I mean, I guess what you're saying here from world wars or from major conflicts, it's true that we control the Western Hemisphere, but it's also true that China is with their Belt and Road policy taking advantage of some African countries and trying to get to the west coast of Africa, down to South America, to screw with us in the Western Hemisphere. And you can't really blame them in that we're in the South China Sea as well and, and playing politics there. So that was kind of a natural course of things. But all in all, as you say in point number 10 or trend number 10, it's a safer world. Yeah. Is that true? It is uh, not not only not only as I as I say and and by the way I, I need to make this very clear if your uh, if your if your listeners are very skeptical about this particular trend about declining violence please have a look at uh, Steven Pinker's book Better Angels of Our Nature it came out about ten years ago Steven Pinker is a famed uh, psychologist at. Uh, Harvard University, he produced a highly regarded uh, thick book full of facts about how violence is decreasing. It's not just wars. Remember other things which we used to do, which we no longer do. For example, we used to take children and expose them on the hillside if we, uh, for whatever reason, felt that we didn't have more children. We used to sacrifice children. Um, Carthage, very famously, used to have a very long um, um, uh, uh, tradition of sacrificing children uh, for whatever reason. What do you mean expose uh, them on the hillside? though right you, you mean you just leave them out to die um in in exposure precisely yeah precisely i mean oh. i mean isn't isn't the myth of romulus and remus was that they were left to die and then a a she-wolf took care of them and raised them uh, so in mythology you have these uh, moses of course is sent down to uh, down down the nile in a basket, um, uh, whatever it was. I mean, uh, uh, remember that in the old days, uh, pater familias, the, the head of the family, had power of life and death over his children as well as uh, his uh, wife and extended family. Countries. So if for whatever reason he felt that maybe the... Um, uh, the 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 um, identity of the child or the fatherhood of the child was in dispute. Uh, the child would be killed on the spot or left to die. Um, Mesoamerica uh, had history of uh, human sacrifice until the European conquest. Um, other things that we used to do to each other was dueling. Uh, men used to shoot each other and uh, pierce each other with uh, swords. We we do need that to come back. 
I, I I'm for it too. I actually, I actually yeah. bring, bring that back. Bring that back. So it. you've got you've got dueling, which we no longer do, and of course we don't torture uh, as much as we used to. Um, and you could say that. Are you talking uh, about as much as we did ten years ago? Well, uh, look, uh, 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 there is there is there is there is plenty of debate on what constitutes torture and whether waterboarding was torture or not. Uh, that, right. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. What Spanish I'm saying, Inquisition kind yeah, of torture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, what I'm saying is that we no longer break somebody on the wheel. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. In in order to get them to confess to, you know, cavorting with Wolverines. Uh, <laughs> Nothing wrong with Wolverines. Yeah. <laughs> if they're hot. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you so, go. So, so, so there are all sorts of bugs. Now, now, uh, homicides, homicides, very important. This is so crucial. Yeah. Um, at the time of Michelangelo or Da Vinci uh, in Italy, um, you know, we are talking 1450s, um, murder rate in uh, in italian city states was about 75 per 100,000 wow. now it's 0.9 per 100,000 so like that gives you a sense of how much more peaceful we have become as a species yeah even in the united states i mean even in the united states the murder rate i guess is what 5 to 6 per 100,000 uh, i think it's between 4 and 5 maybe 5 yeah okay so i mean it's still high but that's much, much lower than even 20, 30 years ago, right? It's much lower than what it used to be uh, even in the mid-1990s, yes. Wow. Yeah, that's it was, it was in the sevens, I think, in the mid-1990s. But you feel like it was much safer in the mid-1990s, or, or the 80s for that matter. I mean, nobody locked the doors of their, of their home. I didn't know anybody that had an alarm system on their home or that worried about that kind of thing. Well, back in the 80s or it, 90s. It's like you said, if it bleeds, it leads. I mean, 55 people shot in Chicago and five killed over the weekend, right? That's all over the TV. Stop watching the news. <laughs> That's yeah. the key to global happiness. Yeah. And part of, part of what's making this all better is the trend of democracy being on the march, right? Because you're saying that, you know, these autocracies, dictatorships, communism— even in their most benevolent nature, it's only benevolent if you agree with them, right? Or they agree with you. And it can maybe last a generation, and then you've got to count on the next benevolent dictator to take over. So the statistics on democracy, there are caveats there. You know, um, uh, again, there, there are some uh, trends which are just simple and beautiful and continue to improve. And there are some trends where you have to put a caveat on that. So um, the world in the 1960s and the 70s, if you looked at the map of the world, uh, autocracies and tyrannies and totalitarian regimes were definitely in the driving seat. There were very, very few democracies. There was only like 50 countries in 1946, right? Or 50 or something like that. Yeah, but by the 1960s and the 70s, you had decolonization, you had uh, dozens of countries uh, that have entered the United Nations. Uh, and um, so by the, by the, by the 1980s, uh, you certainly have most of the world still in some form of autocracy or worse. 1989, 1991 are the key years here because the yeah. Soviet empire collapses and the, most of the countries opt for democracy. And so suddenly you see the switch, whereas before uh, the end of communism, uh, dictatorships were uh, more numerous than democracies. After the fall of the Soviet Union, you have more democracies than authoritarian countries. Now, 
in the last 10 years, we have seen democracies um, subside a little. I mean, Turkey cannot be called a democracy anymore. Russia, which was a very imperfect democracy in the 2000s, that's certainly not a democracy now. It's a dictatorship. Uh, on the other hand, there are some countries which have become democracies. Um, for example, Burma became a democracy at least for a while. Now they are going through another patch of military dictatorship. Nigeria, so Nigeria, which is not just the most populous country in Africa, but by 2050, Nigeria will have more people than the United States. They had wow. peaceful. They, they had peaceful transfers of power between the opposition and the government. So, so you know, there are some positive stories. Some some countries have become democratic uh, in the last, say, 10 years, and some countries have become uh, less democratic. Egypt was a democracy for five minutes, but we didn't like him, so... <laughs> So. so 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 there has been some retrenchment there is no there is no doubt about it but but to say but but we are still in a much better place than we were say in the 1970s or 1980s which is why we included that particular trend mm -hmm. okay all right so look now, 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 let me let me just say one more thing sure See? everything i say yeah. doesn't mean that we cannot fuck things up <laughs> okay hey. past hey. performance is not a prediction of future results uh, so kind of <laughs> we've yeah, we've uh you know we if we don't pay attention to our past we will fuck up our future i mean yeah. So uh, you know, f forgive the strong, uh, strong, very, very, very unscholarly like language. But I love the it. Fact is, oh, I think yeah. it's very scholarly, actually. I the, like it. The Americanism is, no, is wearing in on you. Yeah. Welcome to <laughs> there America. Is no, uh, you know, there is no guiding hand. There is no um, sort of force of history which is guiding us toward ever better future. Um, you know, I would describe the last two hundred years as two steps forward, one step back. Um, we had the Holocaust, we had the First World War, Second World War, we had the Boer War, we had the Korean War, we had the Vietnam War, we had the invasion of Afghanistan we, uh, by the Soviets, we had all sorts of terrible things that happened. But human species are actually quite resilient, because at the end of the 20th century, we still had longer lives, we were more educated, we were better fed than at the beginning of the 20th century, even though 20th century was pretty bloody awful. It's, it's one of those weird things where if you ask somebody, what was the best century in the world, they would have to say 20th. What was the worst century in the world? The 20th. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a part of the, human, the, the contradiction of human, human existence, of human nature. We do terrible things, but we also are capable of great things. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair comment, right? Because like the 20th century, what we've talked about this whole program is the, the, astronomical progress we made throughout the 20th century, right? That like the 20th century, the progress we made was more progress than we had in maybe the 3000 years combined, but we had two world wars. Mm -hmm. So you could say that that was horrific in and of itself. So I can see what you're saying there. But the, the, the humans, humans are the key. Human capital is the key. Germany was reduced to rubble by 1945, but I think that they were back to pre-war GDP by the early 1950s, by like 1952. Why? Because- Because you don't mess with the Germans. That's why. <laughs> First of all, don't mess with the Germans, but secondly, um, uh, second, the human capital. If the, the, the same, so long as you have a population which is educated and hardworking, you can get back into pre-war levels very quickly.
Yeah. I, you know, but as far as that, we don't have a guiding hand. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of feel like the banks are guiding us <laughs> a bit. <laughs> I think the banks are kind of a guiding hand. I would say corporations, drug companies. I mean, you talk here in Trent 34 about accelerating vaccine discoveries. I mean, forever, I was like, was Jonas Salk the only smart guy that ever lived? And then when we really needed it, when we really needed it, and we had to have it with COVID, we've done a few others, the hepatitis B vaccine, and a few others have come out. We're able to do it. Yet, it seems more and more that when there is a disease that's a killer, it's more sensitized for us to make it chronic than it is to put a cure on it or a vaccine. That's been my take on it, that we could probably do a better job. With, and that's, listen, for all of you that are working very hard in the scientific community, do not blow up my Twitter account. <laughs> Again, I don't care what you think. I'm just saying that I think we could do more with vaccines and a little less with, here, I'm going to sell you a pill every day for the rest of your life. Let me try to make you a little more optimistic and ask you, is there anything that has happened this month that you can think of in the area of vaccines, non-COVID related, that, that, uh, that you can think of? In the area of vaccines, uh, I guess they came up with something for Alzheimer's that's helping with them. That was a new drug that that's was approved. A, that's a drug. That's yeah. a drug. Okay, yeah. I'll give you one more try. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't talk to you. Yeah, Listen, vaccine. last month, last month, we have come up with a vaccine that's 70% effective against the greatest killer of humans in the history of the world, malaria. Ooh. Oh. Well, I was hoping cancer because yeah, I was you hoping know, cancer too. Well, we'll, 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 we'll get. You see, you are a, a guy who is glass half empty kind no, of guy. I'm not. I'm just thinking of myself. That's all. Is that, is that a line? Is that a line in the weeds I, there? I'm just selfish and self interested. You have me all wrong. No other. No other disease uh, compares. C compares black plague, cancer. Um, nothing compares to malaria wow. in terms of how many billions of people have died from malaria since really, you know, we, 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 we peeled off from the chimps. Um, and as of last month or so, we now have a vaccine that's 70% effective against malaria. Um, and that completely got ignored uh, by the mainstream media because we are so obsessed about COVID and don't care about the fact that there are millions of people who continue to die every year from malaria. Two million children die from malaria in Africa every year. Yeah, um, That's a big deal, and uh, we should be more grateful about uh, these things going on. Well, I'm going to take a moment to think about it and, and be grateful, and, and I don't mean that in a glib way. I really don't. I mean, I think that is a big deal. You know, generally things that happen on other continents, you know, it's an American thing. You just want it to be better for yourself. But... Yeah, Africa deserved a win. They really did. I'm I'm glad that they have that vaccine. I still think that there's a cure for cancer out there. 
that's not going to take us to that Will Smith movie, whatever that was called. Oh, uh, I am legend. I am legend. I don't want to. Well, um, you know, cancer. Uh, but but why is cancer a problem? The can- cancer is uh, nobody's because dying. Because tobacco. Can- yeah. <laughs> Well, no, because we are living longer. I mean, what is cancer? Cancer is just uh, a a cell subdivision that goes wrong. And uh, the longer you live, the greater the chances that something like this is going to occur. And so uh, cancer is really a um, uh, cancer is a feature of old age. Um, Nobody died of cancer 300 years ago because nobody, well, because very few people lived beyond 60. Yeah. Yeah. 30. 300 years ago, I think few people lived beyond 30. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, life ex- uh, life expectancy was about 25 to 30. That's yeah. true. Um, but 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 even old people, well, people who made it into their 60s, um, very few people died of cancer. Really? All right. Well, listen, out of the two of us, you're the doctor, so fix it. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this, is a, this is a great book. I mean, there are many, many other trends. Are there any other trends you want to talk about before we we sign off? I want to just tell everybody you need to read this and and get educated, really. I mean, there's be out there to inform other people about some statistics that matter. Well, thank you very much. Um, the, 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 you know, there are plenty. Uh, I, I will simply point out that out of the 78 trends in the book, 10 are specifically devoted to the United States. Some of the cool things which are happening in the United States, uh, we are also looking at such as, for example, the prevalence of racist attitudes and how those have collapsed um, uh, since really? the, uh, the during the course of the last century. Uh, Were you like, not here example, last year? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's part of the problem with our negativity biases is that whenever we achieve something good, it becomes the new floor and we judge problems uh, in 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 uh, in relation to that new floor uh, rather than how far we have come. So, you know, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I understand. I understand uh, police brutality. Uh, I am much less sympathetic to the notion of microaggressions and things like that. I, I do not. Oh, the microaggressions bug the shit I'm, out I'm of not me. A, I'm not a big fan of people getting offended when you open a door for them or, uh, you know, if you ask them, where are you from? That's a very interesting accent and all of these things are are actually not particularly helpful or marion i go through half of my day anymore trying not to offend somebody <laughs> but you can't do that because i, mean, if I, I know is, i know if the audience is large enough you're going to offend somebody i totally agree but like there there are just some people i just you know because like look i've been a gay rights advocate my entire life right i've had people in my family and i grew up and i had friends but you know, I guess you can't be, you know, a moderate Republican and, and a gay rights advocate, right? You know, certainly. I don't know. Uh, Gallup today came out with a poll which shows that majority of Republicans now favor gay marriage. Yeah, I mean, I always did. They should be as miserable as we are. Yeah, I mean, well, like, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean like, it, you know, and racial inequality, uh, you know, always been an, an issue with me. And, you know, you just don't want to get put in that position or you don't want to you know, be in that sexist position. But, but some of it really pisses me off. Like I, you know, I have some very younger people and, and my family who are gay and, you know, I good news and bad news, good news. Nobody cares. Bad news. Nobody cares. So (laughs) just stop. And, and I try to say to them, look, being gay didn't happen when you were born (laughs) and it was much, much worse 
30 years ago were, that I can speak to. I'm sure it was way worse 300 years ago. So if you have any class at all, find somebody 30 years older than you that is gay and go thank them for what they did and, and how they paved the way. And same thing with racial inequality, right? I mean, it was way worse 30, 50, and 60 years ago and sexism and things of that nature. But you're saying wage gaps have, have started to come down across the board and that a lot of this stuff has gotten much better that we don't talk about. Well, I mean, I can, I can certainly talk about the gay issue because I'm gay. And, oh, there you go. Um, you know, yeah, I, I came to this country in... It's a growth uh, industry. <laughs> every, everybody wants a gay friend now. Yeah. Uh, so I came to this country in 2002 and uh, remember the Lawrence decision, which decriminalized sodomy in Texas, only came in 2003. So between 2003 and 2015, moving from a place where sodomy was punishable by, uh, uh, by, by jail to a country where gay people can marry is probably, I'm pretty certain, the greatest change of public opinion, the fastest change of public opinion in the history of humanity. Wow. And uh, and the notion that people today should uh, belittle uh, this country and attack this country because uh, because we are not always up on uh, um, you know we are not always leaders in in these sorts of things is is in my view deeply. Um, uh, deeply ahistorical. Gay rights were not even a thing 50 years ago. And within, within the scope of 12 years, we have moved from uh, punishment to gay marriage. So give people some slack, uh, realize that people need some time to adjust and don't abuse it. Don't go around claiming that you are a victim when you are a 20-year-old kid who's never had to put up with the sort of shit that Andrew Sullivan and others had to put up with. I love Andrew Sullivan. Uh, yeah, fighting against uh, fighting against real discrimination. Uh, right. You know, it's no, it, it really is no heroism uh, standing in the middle of Dupont Circle in Washington D.C. with a placard saying, "I'm gay, uh, deal with it." Everybody deals with it. So yeah, it was heroism 50 years ago. If you want, if you want, if you want to do something for gay rights, uh, do something for gays in Saudi Arabia and uh, and in Gaza and uh, take your in, sign in, with you and and in Egypt and places like that. If you want to do something for women's rights, have a look at uh, clitorectomies in uh, in uh, in in the Middle East and do something about that. And Africa. Uh, if you want to do about something about child labor, do something about Democratic Republic of the Congo. But uh, don't try to give me this hero nonsense by uh, by being a uh, uh, by having all the rights you could possibly imagine here in the United States and claiming that this country is somehow rotten to the core. It is not. We are imperfect because human beings are imperfect. We are fixing it gradually, one step at a time. And please be grateful for the great things that uh, you have. Well, that's that's a great place to end it. Yeah, it, it it all ain't so bad. No. And I appreciate that you're putting out a book that says it ain't so bad with stats behind it. And you know, I appreciate that you're not going overboard too. I know that we were we were even having a conversation about John Wayne before we started recording and you know, you were you were like, "Hey, have you have you have you read some of the stuff that guy said in the 60s?" And I'm like, yeah, it's cringeworthy. But your comment kind of was like, it is. It definitely is. But you can't hold him by the standards of today. No. 
No, you can't. And I think you could say that about a lot of people, right, that are losing their jobs for something they may have said or done 20 or 30 years ago. That's right. I mean, Democrats feel very passionate about Barack Obama. Barack Obama ran against gay marriage. Does it mean that we now have to uh, tear down, uh, you know, damnatio memoriae, that we have to now uh, write yes. him out of history? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't. Oh, I mean, I mean, no. you know, so, so cheer up, for God's sakes. All right. Cheer up, everybody. Let's, let's leave it there. Dr. Marion Tupi, he's been a fantastic guest. I mean, like, you know, if you hear him on another podcast, He'll have other things to say, so listen to him there. Buy his book. It is very interesting. And thanks for joining us today in the Woof Den. If you liked what we had to say, please retweet us, hit like. If you don't like what we had to say, I don't care. So, you know, leave a comment if you want. And, Doctor, one last thought. Do you want to tell us how we can follow you on Twitter or your platforms? Do you do, you do that? Um, to keep saying I don't have my own Twitter account, but uh, Human Progress is on Twitter, uh, it's on Facebook, it's on Instagram, and of course, we run a website called humanprogress.org. Please come and visit. Great. Human Progress on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Join, visit, and follow Dr. Tupi.